This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Well, things are finally defrosting in this country. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath to warm you up on the Sunday Night Health Show, a show all about health. It's about your health because your health is your wealth. The benefits of great health cannot be overstated. Great health leads to a longer, happier life and even better relationships. Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, and even sexual. Uncovering what lies beneath the sheets. I have a passion for up-to-date and accurate health information to guide you so that the life you lead is the best it can be. Please do put the kitties to bed as listener discretion is advised. Remember, we are going under the covers. On this program, my aim is to provide you with up-to-date, evidence-informed information so that you know there are options for treatment for anything that ails you. Please do, however, always consult with your medical doctor or your healthcare practitioner. Tonight on the program, we're going to be talking about some new surgical techniques and, in fact, a... uh, a new technique, just in case you haven't put the kids to bed yet, we're going to be talking about your member, uh, if you have one, and uh, transplant surgery for your member. And something has happened down at Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital. So I'll be anxious to talk about that. I'm sure you are too. Also, with the defrosting, we're going to be talking about how to spring clean your work life. You know what? Work life is so important as well because when you are stressed at work and you bring that home into your relationship, that can cause a whole lot more trouble. Or are you the one that's focusing more on your work than your partner's work? Do you think your work is more important than theirs? Do you share more than they do? Do you bring it home back to the bedroom? Okay, I've got some strategies for you on that. And how about living true to your sexuality? This is a problem for a lot of people because we have these cultural divides and and we have this religious teaching as well. And we have this stigma that goes along that people are judging other people because of their sexuality. So people are afraid to perhaps come out of the closet. And there is some research to support or suggest that many gay men pretend to be bisexual while they are coming out. And that just, it's, it's just so sad to me. And it just speaks volumes in terms, of, in terms of how far we need to go in this country in terms of accepting people, in terms of accepting everybody. And, and really, do you think about what other people are doing? I don't. Uh, we had a terrible tragedy, another unspeakable tragedy in this country this week. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the movement in cell, where it began and uh, where it potentially is going. And our hearts go out to anyone who was affected by this misogynistic hatred that occurred on the streets of Toronto this week. A little bit more on that later. I had a patient this week who was suffering from heartbreak. His girlfriend had met somebody else. They'd gone out together for about five or six years. She had a couple of kids that he was uh, connected with, and uh, he was heartbroken, quite frankly. And so uh, he had sent her some frantic, desperate text messages, like, what happened? What do you mean you've met somebody else? And I'm, my heart is breaking, and, and things of that nature. And she shot back with, if you text me again, I'm going to get a restraining order against you. And you know what? Sometimes they give restraining orders out like candy. So he panicked, and he went to his doctor immediately, but he also signed up for an online digital appointment with me. I use a HIPAA-compliant program called VC. Uh, it's HIPAA-compliant for privacy. So he signed up with me, and I, and I actually saw him at the end of the week. 
And um, but he'd already gone to his doctor and he had about 10 minutes with her and she prescribed an antidepressant because he was panicked. He said he felt like he was having a heart attack. These are symptoms of broken heart syndrome. And he was very anxious. And so she prescribed this medication, nothing else. And he was on it for about a week, at which point he came to see me through the digital platform. And he was a rational, calm guy who realized that, you know, his girlfriend had taken things the wrong way or his ex-girlfriend had. And and so I suggested that perhaps antidepressants weren't the best medicine for him. And I wanted him to go back to his doctor and talk about that. And I'm going to tell you why I thought that antidepressants were not the best medication for him. There are two serious side effects that I think people need to know about and to learn about one of which is sexual side effects, and the other is antidepressant withdrawal syndrome. And that can be pretty fierce and pretty serious. So I'm going to talk to you about that. Also, I feel like writing a blog called Fat Finances and Sex because they seem to be related. I've had a number of patients in my clinical practice over the last few weeks that where they're in a sexless marriage, defined by the experts, sex less than 10 times a year, and the problem is weight, number one, or finances, number two. And and so it's very interesting that this, uh, you know, after someone's, you're, you're with somebody for 10, 20 years, you know, people can let themselves go. I'm not a believer in that. I'm a believer in taking care of yourself, hence the Sunday Night Health Show, uh, to, you know, I'm a believer in exercising, taking good care of yourself, not chewing tobacco or smoking cigarettes or cigars or doing anything that's unhealthy like that, any addiction that you might have, deal with that, deal with the issues as to why you have that. But, you know, oftentimes people let themselves go. And some people just expect that, hey, love me the way I am, as large, larger than life. And that's a real turnoff for people. Or, or it can be. Some people will love that teddy bear uh, kind of thing. I even had one patient, uh, she was a cattle rancher's wife, and and she said they were in a sexless marriage because he didn't want to have sex. He had erection function issues. Hopefully you put the kids to bed, or, but they're getting a university education on sex if you haven't. Um, but anyway, she said he's gained like 60 pounds. He's got a lot in his gut. He's, she's not really attracted to him, but she loves him. She still wants to have sex, intimacy. It's so confusing. Another patient who also, whose husband had also gained about 125 pounds since their marriage 20 years ago, said she's no longer attracted to him. It's hurtful for her to say that to him. It's really hard. And it, although it's not, because they typically have problems down there. Lots of women emailing me lately about their uh, problems, their issues, that the man in their life doesn't want to be intimate with them. So that's a real problem, and it, can, it really hurts so much. But also finances. When people are not comfortable with how they're managing their finances in their relationship, that translates right back to the bedroom. So people need to be calm. And, you know, a lot of people say women need emotional, you know, it's about the brain. And the, yes, the brain is the largest sex organ, but women need sort of this emotional, vague thing that's, you know, uh, out there. But it's really that women need peace of mind. Uh, in order to be able to be intimate with their partner. And that's a, a whole different thing than this whole idea that guys are going after this, you know, what am I supposed to do, you know, prior to, and how am I to make her feel emotionally loved and wanted and that that sort of thing, which leads us to overthinking. It's one of the main causes of unhappiness. And I'm going to review that tonight on the program with you as well. 
More and more, I am suggesting or prescribing mindfulness meditation in my clinical practice that can actually change your brain. It can actually help you to focus and keep your brain young, which is important because Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia and affects 564,000 Canadians with the number expected to reach nearly a million in 15 years. We have lots of Alzheimer's walks across this country on May 6th. And uh, these are sponsored by the Investors Group. And it's the one of the it is the biggest fundraiser for Alzheimer's um, uh, disease. And it's it's very important. Uh, it's a very important subject. Also going to be talking, getting back to the financial thing. What if you get divorced at 50 as a woman? It's a lot different for you. But anyway, when I return, we're going to be talking with Michelle Bacanani about Alzheimer's disease and the toll it can take on your family. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. It is my pleasure to be here with you this evening. Alzheimer's is a type of dementia that causes problems with memory, thinking, and behavior. Symptoms usually develop slowly and get worse over time, becoming severe enough to interfere with daily tasks. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia and affects 564,000 Canadians, with the number expected to reach 937,000 in 15 years. Alzheimer's Society of British Columbia is hosting the Investors Group Walk for Alzheimer's, Canada's biggest fundraiser for Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. This is happening across the province on Sunday, May 6th. Michelle Bacanani is here in studio with me to discuss the often devastating toll of Alzheimer's disease. And she would know this disease has impacted her family. Welcome to the studio, Michelle. Hi, Maureen. Thanks. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming into the studio. So your grandmother was afflicted by this disease, Alzheimer's disease. And you saw a very matriarchal woman go from... Uh, caring for the entire family, a great Italian cook, to putting her shoes in the freezer and other behaviors like that. Yes, it was really um, it was really shocking to our family because Grandma ruled the roost. Um, my grandfather uh, didn't speak great English and worked as a laborer at in the smelter at Kaminko in Trail, and we all thought she was the one in charge because she bossed him or like you couldn't believe it. And then when um, he passed away, everything fell apart. And we quickly realized that, in fact, my grandfather had been covering for her for a while and that, you know, she really didn't have it all together. And that was the beginning, the early stages. Um, and, of course, you know, it got worse from there. It, and how old was she at that time? She was in her 70s when she was diagnosed, but she lived... Um, she lived an unusually long time with Alzheimer's. She was in her late 80s when she passed away. And the last six or seven years of her life, she was essentially confined to her bed or a wheelchair and was nonverbal. She didn't speak. And so it was really devastating to go and visit her, um, you know, because it there was only the, we from the outside, all we could see was the shell of the person that she used to be. And it really... It was important to us and to really see the and remember the person that was inside of there. Because otherwise, you know, I was really shocked at how few people visit their relatives in care homes when they get to that stage. And I can appreciate that, you know, it's tough to see your loved ones that way. 
But I would, you know, we the family would go in and just hold her hand. And we weren't sure whether she knew we were there, but we hoped she did. And we hoped that that gave her some comfort. Now, Alzheimer's disease affects people, of course, all across the country. And it doesn't discriminate. And these walks are happening all across the country on Sunday, May 6th. So they'll be in Manitoba and Alberta, Ontario. Yeah, all across the country. Um, We're just harmonizing all the provinces to come together on the same day. And Investors Group, um, we're extremely excited and grateful. They've decided to become a title sponsor across the country. They've been so supportive in the West up till now. And research is so important, and and I would imagine that's what the money is being raised for. Yeah, the money is being raised uh, to support the societies in two ways. Um, We have um, this concept of help for today and hope for tomorrow. So research is the hope for tomorrow part. And we, through the Alzheimer's Society Research Program and various efforts in each of the provinces, we support researchers who are looking into uh, the causes and the cure and, and looking for a cure for Alzheimer's. But the other part is very important as well, and it's how my family came to connect with this society, which is help for today Because a diagnosis of Alzheimer's is devastating. People often don't know where to turn, don't don't know what it means for them. And the Alzheimer's Society of BC plays a really critical role in providing the information, creating a community so people don't feel alone. Um, My parents turned to the Alzheimer's Society when my grandmother was diagnosed more than 30 years ago. And it was The information they received was so important to them that they actually started volunteering with the society and have been volunteering now for more than 30 years. And your family is an honorary family for this walk for British Columbia. Yeah, we're the honorary family for Vancouver. Um, There's a a separate honorary family in each of the 23 communities because community is so important and having um, local uh, people in each community who can speak about their experience with Alzheimer's and can share um, that experience with their friends and family and their community is really important. And this disease is not limited to older people. Young people actually can get this disease, although it's, uh, the, the incidence is lower. But, but I actually knew somebody in his 40s who was diagnosed. Uh, it, it, he was one of the youngest across Canada to ever have been diagnosed. He has since passed. He uh, lived very shortly thereafter for about two or three years only. And really the last two to three years of his life were devastating where he, um, his marriage ended he ended up living with support. He, at the, by the end, he couldn't recognize his children. He had started having problems at work. What are some of the early signs of Alzheimer's disease or some of the other dementias? And, and, and again, there's medication for Alzheimer's disease, but um, sometimes they're not that effective. Yeah, in it, early onset Alzheimer's is growing in prevalence. It's still, uh, as you quite rightly point out, it's still less prevalent than the than, um the regular onset or and you know people would think of that as 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 older people but early onset is more prevalent and um and it is particularly devastating because um it tends to have um the mortality tends to be sooner um than it is with um regular onset I mean, in terms of symptoms of Alzheimer's, people always ask me that because I'm on the board of the society they say, well, how do I know if I have Alzheimer's and You know, I'm no expert or a doctor, but what I always say, the example I always use is, you know, we always, I I know I dig through my purse for my keys all the time. Where are my keys? Where are my keys? 
Um, and I can't remember where I put them. And and people, I think, worry that 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 kind of forgetfulness is a sign of Alzheimer's. And what I say is looking for your keys or not remembering where you put them isn't isn't Alzheimer's. L- holding your keys in your hand and looking at them and not remembering what they're for, right. that's um, an indication of potentially of dementia. And that when you, when you look at an everyday object and you can't remember what it's for um, or you can't remember what a word means, then that, those are more likely to be symptoms of dementia than regular forgetfulness as we get older. And is this a hereditary condition? There is a hereditary component of it. And, and you know, there is a lot of research, including here at UBC, that, that the Alzheimer's Society is funding, um, looking at the genetic component of Alzheimer's. And there, there, there is definitely some genetic component. It's less, I think, um, in terms of um, prevalence of Alzheimer's, it's less... Um, significant than people think. It's it's a much smaller percentage of the total population of people who get Alzheimer's than I think people think. It's sort of under 10%, at least as people understand it now. But, you know, the, the world's changing in terms of, of how much we understand about the disease. So if you're a relative had it, you may not necessarily expect to get Alzheimer's disease. That's right. I mean, there are there is genetic testing. You can find out if you're a carrier of that. But again, genetic testing is, is a tiny percentage of, of the population. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, it, it's such a confusing, dare I say, you know, pun intended, confusing illness and it, and it manifests itself in so many different ways. But I think sometimes people may lack insight or start to struggle or, or be stressed unnecessarily. And, and those can be some of the softer or more subtler signs of Alzheimer's. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it one of the things Alzheimer's affects people's mood and behavior. And so, you know, those signs of stress can be confusing at the outset. Um, but if, you know, what, what, what I would say is if you're worried, go and see your doctor and, and have that conversation. One of, the, one of the things that we're working really actively at the, at the Alzheimer's Society to address is the stigma around dementia. And, you know, the Alzheimer's Society recently did a survey that had really shocking numbers about people not wanting a diagnosis. Very high percentages, more than 50% of people would avoid a diagnosis because they didn't want to deal with the consequences. In reality, though, the sooner you get a diagnosis, you can make changes and and plan your life in, in a way that maximizes the time and the quality of the time that you have left. So we really encourage people, reach out and get that diagnosis um, if, you're, if you're worried. Okay, perfect. Thank you. And so people can go in their provinces to the Alzheimer's Society to sign up for the walk that's happening across this country on May 6th. Michelle, thank you so much for coming into the studio. I really appreciate it. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Well, finally, it is spring here in Canada. And did you know that three quarters of you are getting ready to do your spring cleaning at home? And this is according to the American Cleaning Institute uh, and, and their recent survey. And so we often think of spring cleaning our house, right? And listen, I they call me Ruth because I am ruthless <laughs> in terms of getting rid of stuff, decluttering. I always have a hefty trash can liner in each bedroom of uh, the upstairs of our home. And, uh, and that is to declutter um, clothing, anything that is stained 
anything that is uh, tattered or unfashionable goes into those bags. Uh, because the last thing I want is if there's a fire or something, you know, like someone to come in and see a mess in my house. As I've mentioned, mild OCD in the past. Um, but uh, you know what? Cleaning your house, we think of that, and we think that that is important, and it and it is. And, you know, you've got to stay on top of it. In homes, you have hot spots, and that's where everybody throws everything at the end of the day. And as soon as they come in, they're tossing their bags, they're tossing their lunches, they're tossing whatever. What They've cleaned their car, and they brought it into the hot spot in your house. But it's important. It's just as important to... Um, Spring clean your work life as well, your office. Some people live under a pile of really trash or, you know, and, and a lot of people say, um, I, I know where everything is. It's a mess. It's a disaster. Yes. But, um, you know, it's it works for me. I actually went into an open house one time and I was laughing so hard with the realtor because the place was not only a pigsty. They were renters in the house. Not only pigsty, but the guy's office was just, it was just under paper. It was, it, you couldn't even get, find your way in there. But you know what? Apparently people, a lot of people work like that. And we take in at least 64 gigabytes of information every day. And this is according to research search from the University of Cal at San Diego. And you know what? We have a lot of clutter in our minds and multitasking is uh, it's a part of life today between, you know, your computer and your mobile phone, your, your smartphone, you're checking email, you are browsing social media, you are shopping online, you are ordering stuff for the home for your, your clothing. Um, I even ordered a wetsuit on, on Amazon recently. And we also consume media and we take in about 12 hours of that a day. And so the more information we fill our minds with, the poorer our ability to remember, to remembering things. And so literally the brain becomes cluttered and we're less able to ignore irrelevant information. And so, excuse me, there are so many things that this applies to in your life and especially at work. You know, people will say to me, I had 256 emails in my inbox. I've just gone through them all. Um, you know, this is something that if you're finding yourself constantly checking your inbox for new work emails, there's an easy way to cut that habit out of your daily routine. And that is, you know, doing some breathing exercises. And because people can panic when they're looking for, you know, when they're looking for these emails. And so one of the best ways to lower your heart rate, because your heart rate can go up and your breathing rate can go up. Um, so the way you want to lower your heart rate and your blood pressure is to slow down your breathing intentionally and especially on the exhale. So you want to just basically approach your desk, your work life, uh, from, you know, from a quieter mind and it will be easier for you to be at your desk, but you also need to take time. And this is something I do. Like, honestly, I really try not to make, take advice that I haven't tried myself. I basically try everything. Okay, yeah. Yes, absolutely everything. <laughs> um, but I also will schedule cleanup time in my office in my calendar. Okay, so I take time to get everything organized, put everything away, file everything, or, or set up time to make files if I take on a new project. First thing I do is I set up time and, you know, we're, we're not living in a paperless society, 
But and so sometimes you do need to have documents printed off that you know NDAs, for example, or contracts. Um, so set up the files, you know. So get prepared. It goes a long way. And you know what? It's important that you're creative in your work and that you have a little fun. You know, you can't just work. All work and no play makes time for a dull day. Um, you know, and so you want to actually be playful and mindful. But you know what? It's a lot of people can't be playful. For example, adult children of alcoholics have difficulty having fun. And there's 11 characteristics of, of adult children of alcoholics. They're super responsible or super irresponsible. They have a tendency toward anxiety. But one of these things is they have false loyalties. They're good in crises, though. But one of these things is that they have difficulty having fun. But play has a positive impact on creativity because in addition to helping us both mind-wander and diversify, it will stimulate positive emotion. And research demonstrates that that leads to greater insight and better problem-solving. And that, I mean, who doesn't like to problem solve? Of course, guys love to problem solve. And in fact, they want the problem solved immediately. So, you know, the other thing I suggest is getting outdoors, have walking meetings. I definitely engage in that. And and I love that. You get a little bit of exercise. You get a little bit of fresh air. Also, you want to do some things with your coworkers that, you know, that are kind of fun. Um, so maybe organize a, an event monthly that everybody can get together and chill out. Um, You know, play can be a way of getting unstuck and coming up with innovative ideas. Also, it gets you around other people and socialization is excellent for, for your brain and to keep your brain healthy and young. And in terms of spring cleaning your career, you know, have you ever thought of adding plants to your office? Okay, this one I don't do. Okay, I'm not a plant lady, (laughs) not a cat lady, not really even a dog lady. I love my dog, but, um, and I like dogs. But uh, I'm not a plant person. I, but research does show that it will improve your mental well-being significantly. And so having greenery around your desk. But if you have a million papers and it's totally cluttered, you cannot have a plant there also. It'll just be a disaster. It'll get spilled over. The dirt will fall. Maybe that's what I'm afraid of. Um, it can improve air quality as well. One NASA study found plants remove indoor toxins from the air. So it can help. So some research suggests that it can increase concentration, workplace satisfaction, and therefore overall quality of life. And it actually makes workers more physically, cognitively, and emotionally involved in their workplace. So you know what? Take the time to set up your business, your office, your work. Take the time to clean it. At the end of the day, I used to call it my descent. At the end of the day, it was like the airplane descending. You know, I'd take a half an hour before the day ended and I would just put everything away, clean up everything, wipe off the desk. Uh, I never eat at my desk either. That's something I don't recommend because, you know, you really need time away from that desk to focus and concentrate and take that break. But also it's a mess. You're going to, needless to say, you're going to spill some crumbs there. So, and instead of scrolling through your phone, that can be very addictive. You know, it's better to just leave the phone in the desk drawer, go outside, take a walk, Take a few deep breaths, go to a garden store, pick up some plants, know that your life is, you know, is rejuvenated. And this is something that you have to stay on task. You don't want to continue to do this because if you are disorganized at work, unhappy at work, stressed at work, you are going to come home and believe me, that is going to lower sexual desire in your partner. I am Maureen McGrath and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. 
Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you as I do every Sunday evening. It is my pleasure always to be here with you. And thank you so much for being here with me talking about my favorite subjects, health and sex and of late mindfulness. I am prescribing that more and more in my clinical practice. And you probably noticed that I'm talking about it a lot. I just finished a segment on mindfulness at work or really taking that time to declutter your your space and your mind. But you know what? Sometimes, especially in this fast-paced, information-grabbing or absorbing world in which we live, this multitasking that we're doing, sometimes we are not living in the moment, which is my favorite place to live. Actually, I like to live in the mo moment. (laughs) Anyway, but uh, many people don't live in the moment. They also go to worst case scenario. Somebody gets a fever and they think, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world. They're going to die. You know, if they don't know the origin of the fever, for example, or if somebody suspects that uh, their partner is having an affair. They automatically go to, this is going to lead to divorce. This is what happened in my such and such relationship. And, you know, in my past relationship. So certainly it's going to head that direction. And so they panic and they get all upset and they're not living in the moment. And so this is why I am often prescribing basically mindfulness meditation, which will have you more likely living in the moment, which is a great place to live. And, you know, that worst case scenario is so common amongst so many of us, and it can it can cause so many problems. First of all, we have to realize everybody has problems. Nobody has a perfect life. We have little problems. Some people can get really upset about a small problem. And other people, you, you wonder, how do they even go about life uh, with all of the problems that they have? And, and you just think, how can they even do that? The other thing is, you know, it's been said, if you hung your laundry out to dry, uh, in other words, an analogy for your problems, you'd likely be one of the first people to bring your laundry back in because other people's problems are so much worse. And that can help a lot of people as well. So we are thinking about our problems no matter what comes our way. And we're thinking about solutions and worries. And sometimes they are productive and sometimes they are not. And sometimes thinking can become so constant, it itself can become problematic. So we really need to stop that thinking, slow down that thinking in order to live in the moment, which is the best place to live. If you live in the past, you live in depression. If you live in the future, you live in anxiety. And the, But we all try to stop thinking. So many people will say, you know, I'm up at night, I've got the mind chatter, it's going on all the time, or the negative voice in my head. Dan Harris wrote a book, 10% Happier. It's a great book. I would suggest you read it. I have read it. And it is a great, um, you know, it's it's a guy who you think ha- would have would have had it all. And you know what? In many levels, he did have it all. He had a privileged upbringing and he had a great career, but he also had some experiences in Afghanistan. He ended up with PTSD. He tried to calm his anxieties with substance use and abuse, and he found mindfulness. He found mindfulness meditation. And so that is a great book, and I suggest anybody who is not living in the moment, who feels like that their mind is on fire all the time, you know what? Have a, a look at that book. It's it's fantastic. According to Buddhism and Western psychology, it is all about living in, it's all about living um, 
in the moment and learning acceptance and actually letting go, knowing the things you can control and knowing the things that you can't. And so there are a number of strategies that I want to review with you to help you to stop overthinking so that you can start living. There was a study in 2007. It was done by Professor Norman Farb at the University of Toronto. And this study broke new ground in our understanding of mindfulness from a neuroscientific perspective. It found that we as humans have two different sets of networks in the brain for dealing with the world. And so we have that first network, which is the default network. And this is the network that is uh, that starts or, you know, is ignited when not much is happening. And you start to focus on you. You start to think about yourself. You start planning and daydreaming and ruminating. And ruminating can be, you know, it can be dangerous for some people. They can get stuck in that. But this is what holds together our narrative or your narrative about the world in which you live. Then we have the direct experience network. And that is one that is the way of experiencing experience, if that makes sense. So when this network is activated, you're not thinking intently about the past or the future, other people, or even yourself. You are experiencing the information coming into your senses. So for example, if you are in an intimate moment, I suggest you do this. (laughs) Uh, Many people don't even do this. They actually plan their shopping lists or they Think about what color they're going to paint their ceiling or they're thinking about a meeting that they're having the next day. But if you're intimate with somebody, this is the network that is activated when you notice the sensations, the touch, the feeling, the caress of that other person touching your body. Or if it's yourself, it's yourself touching yourself and feeling how great that feels and being mindful and being aware Uh, perhaps a better example for some of you, because mostly what I see is people who are not engaging in sex. That's what my clinical practice is largely focused on, although I do some other work as well. Um, but if you're in the shower, this it's, it's also activated, for example, or you're taking a bath, it's activated when you notice the warm water hitting your body, hitting your, your head, for example, like, you know, I just love to take a shower in the morning because, you know, it's, it's what wakes me up. If I don't take a shower, I actually look tired all day, but, and I have to wet my head. <laughs> I don't know. That's some weird disorder that, uh, see, I'm, I'm ruminating. I'm overthinking it. Um, so the interesting thing about both of these networks is that they are inversely correlated. And so if you have an, a meeting coming up, an important date, um, you know, or some event while you are taking a shower, you're less likely to notice, for example, that you've cut yourself, perhaps if you were shaving, because the network involved in direct experience is le- less active. So you don't feel your senses as much. But fortunately, this will work both ways. So when you intentionally focus your attention on incoming sensory data, such as feeling the water on your head, the warm water on your head, or the soap as you're washing your hair, or, your, or perhaps your lover is massaging your back in the shower, or you've got the body sprays on if you're so fortunate to have body sprays. Um, you're feeling that while you wash. It reduces activation of the narrative circuitry. So what this means in terms of overthinking, when you intentionally activate your direct experience network by using your senses, you're reducing activity in your default network, which is involved in the overthinking. And that's why meditation breathing exercises can work when you're overthinking because you focus your attention 
on this sensory experience of your breath. So that breathing in and out. And, and a good way to try this to get focused on actually feeling the sensations is by putting a raisin in your mouth and actually feeling that raisin, feeling the edges, feeling what it's like and focusing on that. Your senses become alive at that moment, your saliva the sense, the touch. You can do this at any time during the day, but I suggest people do it in the morning, get it over with, have her done. Um, But you want to simply tune into your senses, whether it is, you know, when your feet hit the ground, when you wake up in the morning, or, you know, you're pouring that beautiful cup of hot coffee into your mug and you're wrapping your hands around that mug. The more you do this type of thing, the more you focus on these sensations, the more you will rewire your brain to experience that present moment. But you know what? It's hard because when you try to control your thoughts, you probably notice that more thoughts come, you know, um, and you're thinking all the time and overthinking. And that, you know, when you start overthinking, you start panicking and start, you know, living in the future and then you get anxious. But it's it's a little bit like, um, you know, putting out a fire with fire or putting out a flood with added water. But it, it, even though it seems like the most logical thing to do. So in, in terms of obtaining perfect calmness in your practice, you're unlikely going to be doing that. But don't be bothered by the various images that come in and out of your mind. Let them come in and let them go out. They, that's how they will gain, you will gain control over them. So you know what? Take your thoughts, watch your thoughts, give them plenty of room. You don't want to shove them aside. You want to just notice them, the in, the out, much like your breath. And so we want to be an observer of our thoughts. So try and practice this. Let me know. Pop me an email, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and let me know if this has helped you to live a calmer life, being continuously aware of each thought as it rises, as it comes and goes, breathes in and out. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.